Amen. So good morning again. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew. I didn't introduce myself before. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. So uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you. Uh, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, our scripture reading is going to be from Second Peter. Uh, I believe it's uh, page 118 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll also be on the screen behind me and it's printed for you. So there's no... No excuse for you to not get your eyes on these words as we read them together, okay? From Peter's second letter to the churches, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 10. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might have you might that you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire that's one sentence okay peter's excited you should be too for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He is an English teacher's nightmare. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. This is God's word. Today is Pentecost Sunday, in case you're not aware. And that is the time when the church historically remembers the events of Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit fell upon the church in great power and fueled early Christian movement. The power of God came down, and I would say uh, it's good to be reminded of that because we need the very same thing. We need the power of God to continually fall upon us as a people. And I would say to you, be encouraged. Look around the room. This place is full this morning in the middle of the summer in Florida. That's a big deal. God's at work. God's doing something among us. If you've not been here um, you know, over the last four or five years or so, we've had a couple of lean years here. But we really, I believe, have turned the corner and there's some fresh wind being blown into our sails. Uh, God's bringing new people. We have a lot of new families that we're really excited about coming into the church. And so be excited. Amen. God's doing something, uh, and I just want you to be aware of that, but, it's, but we need for the power of God to fall. We need for the Spirit of God to come, and so uh, we want to be reminded of that today as we celebrate Pentecost, and also that Christianity, real Christianity, there at the very beginning in Acts chapter 2, and since that time, Christianity is supernatural. You see that in Acts. There's a supernatural power at work in the church there, even when it doesn't look like it, and if you're a Christian... It was a super act, supernatural act of God that made you a Christian. And that same supernatural power that first led you to faith is still at work in you and will be until God supernaturally finishes what he supernaturally began in you, according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. 
Our job is to be working out all that God is supernaturally working into us. And so if you say, if you're here this morning and you say you know Jesus, you are a walking spiritual nuclear reactor. I mean it. I know you probably don't feel like that. You are the receptacle of divine power in verse 3 here. Now, here's the thing. If we're not careful, we can get the wrong idea about what this divine power looks like as it comes on a church or as it comes into a person's life. Because, of course, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, they begin to speak in tongues and all kinds of strange things begin to happen. And that doesn't happen so much, at least, you know, only in small circles in the church today. And so we can begin, if we're not careful, to identify the power of God there in Acts chapter 2 exclusively with spiritual gifts like tongues in healing, and so forth. And the danger is to begin to mistake hype for the Spirit. Now, we should pursue spiritual gifts. The Scripture is very, very clear, very obvious about that. We should pursue these gifts, uh, and that's a good thing. We should want the Spirit to be working in our lives in this way. But here in 2 Peter 1, I want you to notice that the divine power, verse 3, that he talks about isn't the gifts of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And in the middle of the first great awakening in America, this time of intense revival where church services were packed and people and, and they were full of these kind of outward manifestations. People were crying out, groaning like animals because their sin was so heavy upon their hearts and so forth. Jonathan Edwards, who was at the center of that, began to be concerned that it was not the real thing. He saw people who exhibited gifts of the Spirit, but they weren't patient and they weren't growing in kindness and they weren't very self-controlled. And so he preached a series of sermons from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says that tongues and prophecy and faith and all of those supernatural gifts, they're, they're fantastic, but you can have all of that and not have love. And if that's the case, then it counts for nothing. So Edwards made the argument in those sermons that has always really stayed with me. He said that the gifts of the Spirit, though they are wonderful things, they are not nearly as important or as impressive as the fruit of the Spirit. And his argument went like this. He said... He said the gifts operate externally while the fruits are something that happens internally. And he used an analogy. He said, if you're not attractive, then the good news is, is you can find clothes that will hide the parts of you that you don't like. You can put on makeup to hide the blemishes. You can wear jewelry and adorn your body with beautiful things to make you look beautiful. He said, that's the spiritual gifts. He said they are outward adornments of power that don't change who you are. They operate externally in your life, but underneath them, you're, you're no different. You're still the same person, but the fruit of the Spirit is something different. And here are his words. He says, if a man is endowed with a gift of working miracles, this power is not anything inherent in his nature. These extraordinary gifts are excellent things. They are like a beautiful garment. They are like precious jewels with which the body may be adorned, but true grace is that whereby the very soul itself becomes, as it were, a precious jewel. And so the gifts of the Spirit are, are like a jewel that you can wear, but the fruit of the Spirit, when that, when that becomes true of you, you yourself become a jewel, and that's better. It's better to be patient and kind. Character is better than talent. And if we're not careful, we can mistake talented people for godly people. We can mistake just hype and what, what uh, theologians call enthusiasm for, for the, the Spirit's work, and we have to be really careful. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a power. You hear me? He's a person, not a power. 
And therefore, the bulk of his powerful work in your life is to turn you into the kind of person that he is. And that's what we see here in this passage. We see divine power that results in faith and virtue and love and self-control and steadfastness and brotherly love and godliness and affection. And for the rest of the summer, I want to talk about what it looks like when God begins to powerfully, on this day where we celebrate the coming of the Spirit, when God begins to powerfully work in you and then work in the world from within you in this way. To live from the inside out, from the core of what God is doing in you and not to live from the outside in. As Paul says in Romans 12, for example, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your inner life, he says there. Both those verbs for uh, the grammar nerds out there are passive imperative words, which is a very strange construction because imperative is a call to action, but there's something you have to do, but the passive part of that means that you're not the one doing it. You're being acted upon, and so there are two options. You can, you're acting out of the way you're being acted upon, in other words, Paul says, and there are two ways he says that can happen. You can uh, act because of the way you're being acted on externally by the world, by the pressures and the demands of other people by your own fears and anxieties as you go through life, or you can act because of the way you're being acted on internally by the Spirit. And it results in two very different ways of living, and that's what this divine power is. And so, that was a long introduction. Uh, we'll be much quicker from here, but I want you to see three things from this text, and they're the three points of the outline that I've given you this morning. So as we talk about the power of God and the Spirit coming into our lives this morning, I want to ask, why Why do we need this power? Secondly, what does it do? What does it really affect in our lives? And then thirdly, once, I hope once you see how desperately we need God to work in this way, thirdly, we'll just ask, well, how do you get it then? How does it come into your life? So those, those three things from this Second Peter text, at least the first pass at it, and we'll come back to it week after week for the next few weeks. But first, why we need this divine power? And if you look... There with me in the text at verse 4, there's a phrase in the middle of all that he says there in that long run-on sentence that I just want to single out to you because we can't say everything about everything in this text this morning, but I want you to see this. He talks about uh, the past life of these people he's writing to, and he says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And I'm going to be very brief here, but we're told that the problem, we're told what it is, And we're told where it comes from. And the problem there in verse 4 is this word corruption. Uh, This is a word that refers to something that is spoiled or rotten or decomposing. It's used in the Bible to describe our experience in this life. uh, In many facets of life, the physical world, Romans 8.21, we're told is, is is corrupted. It's deteriorating. It's falling apart. Our physical bodies, can I get an amen, are just... I hurt everywhere all the time now, and I'm too young for that. But our physical bodies, 2 Corinthians 4.16, we're wasting away, it says there are externally a lot of times. Even what the Bible refers to as the old self in Ephesians 4.22, this old self, this sinful part of us that brings corruption to all the different parts of our life. Sin brings death. And what we're being told here is that there's death in all of us, and it's spreading in us, and then through us, and into everything that we touch. That's the Bible's picture of humanity apart from God. The world is passing away. All that is 
of the world will go with it. So any part of your life that doesn't have God at the very center will eventually crumble. And it happens internally as well as externally as well. The second law of thermodynamics, for the science nerds, I'm going to hit all the nerds this morning, okay? That's supposed to be funny. I'm kidding, guys. The second law of thermodynamics says that unless acted upon from the outside, the entropy of every system will only increase. I hope I got that right. If I didn't, don't yell it out now. Don't embarrass me, but come talk to me later. Okay, in case you've forgotten physics from school, here's what this means. It means that naturally things tend towards chaos. This is an observable fact in the universe about the world we live in, that naturally tend, things tend towards inefficiency and breakdown. Give it enough time, everything falls apart. And that is, isn't it, our experience of the external world. But the good news of Christianity is that even though there is nothing you can do about the external realities of your life, you can't stop the aging process, you can't keep the world around you from crumbling, uh, the corruption can actually be reversed internally in you. So 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, though our outward self is wasting away, our inward self is being renewed. It's the opposite of that idea that I just described. So entropy can actually decrease supernaturally against the laws of nature that clearly govern the rest of the universe. When the spirit comes, he can actually take you from chaos to calm. Isn't that good news? Now, so that's the problem, but here's the cause. We're told that the corruption that is in the world is so because of sinful desire. And that word sinful there in verse 4 is not actually there in the Greek. Instead, it's a compound word, epithumia, epidesire. So it refers not only to a desire for something that is bad, uh, but it is an over-desire for something that is good. So if you want something that is bad for you, of course that's going to cause all kinds of trouble in your life. But you can also over-desire a good thing. It's good to want your kids to love one another and to love you. But if you want it too much, then it can begin to corrupt you and them and, and everything you know, in your family. And what happens is, is these over-desires introduce all kinds of emotional chaos into the system. So you feel highs and you feel lows that are just so overwhelming emotionally that they begin to spoil the things that you want so bad, which just ramps you up even more, which just continues the process even more. And so the problem with our lives, the Bible says here, are these out of control desires, not just for bad things, but even for good things. Because when God is not first, even good things can become bad things. These epi desires corrupt. And they're responsible for so much of our anxiety and fear and therefore the way we try to control and manipulate our lives and other people and we just mess things up. So the chaos inside gives birth to chaos. A disordered heart creates a disordered life. So we need to be rescued from this inner turmoil of inordinate desires that spoils everything. And here's the great news this morning. That's the very thing God promises here. So second, when the power comes then, in God's saving you, he's, he's bringing a person, when a person is saved, they're being brought into contact with the power of the Spirit. What does that divine power do? And I want to spend the majority of our time, the rest of the time we have together here, because it really is astounding. And look, we're just going to walk through some of these things together. The first thing Peter mentions in verse 3 is that divine power means that you never face a scarcity. Isn't that great? 
that you always have an abundance. Look at his words. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The NIV, which is a different translation, says it this way. We have everything we need for a godly life. God has given us everything we need. We are never without. We sing that over and over and over again this morning. It doesn't matter how tired you feel or how down you feel. You've got all you need. God always makes sure of that. And this helps us to take responsibility for our lives, which I'm in a kick on right now because I have a high school senior probably. And it's because we're failing, tragically failing here as a society. We don't force people to take responsibility for their lives anymore. If I sin, it's not because God didn't give me what I needed. It's not because Satan overpowered me. I've got all I need for life and godliness. If I failed, it's, it's, it's because I didn't properly believe that truth and live into it, but it's on me. And if you're a Christian, everything you need, you've already got. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, then you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then you have all of him. The Bible also says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Now you put those two things together and it means this. Even when you feel the most empty, you're still full. Because the Spirit is the living God living inside of you, all of him in you, all of his power, all of his fullness, all of his love so that you're overflowing. Now, you may not feel like it, but if you have the spirit, it's true. God makes sure that you have all that you need and more than you need so that there'll always be not even just enough for you, but there'll always be enough for you to give a little bit away to other people. That's your baseline. You with me? You following with me? That's the baseline. That's the minimum. But then he tells us how we can get this fullness as well. In verse three, if you follow along, he says, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And this is fascinating to me because, again, in the original language, the word there, and I've never seen this in the Bible before. This was, this was the new thing for me this week. But the word there is actually, uh, that word knowledge is the same as what I just said a minute ago. It's the word epi-knowledge. It's an epi-knowing. So the problem in verse 4 is epi-desire. The solution is to epi-know God. There has to be a connection, I think, here. And so to know God in a way that goes beyond just an intellectual knowing, just being able to spout off all the, the answers that you learned in Bible class uh, you know, at school or, or in Sunday school at church or whatever, that you know him in a way that starts to actually reorder the out-of-control desires of your heart. Did you hear me? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine that kind of knowing? To know him in a way that it starts to reorder the way that your life works on the inside. So you can know God and still be controlled by the epi desires of your heart, or you can epi know him and have all of those desires come into line. It's a matter of what you're being controlled by, it's a matter of where the epi in your life is coming from. To epi know him means that your theology is shaping your emotional life and not the other way around. And what happens when that happens is, is it produces this profound inner change. And it's really hard to explain the significance of what Peter says here. It's much bigger than we think. And it's obvious that he's having a hard time with it. Verses 3 and 4, I, I, I mentioned it when we read it. They're grammatically clunky. It's hard to follow. It's this run-on sentence that, that really doesn't make 
much sense, but it boils down to this. He says, verse four, I just want to pull this one thing out. He says that all that he says is to get us to this place. He says, all of this is because we have become partakers of the divine nature. Do you see that? Just let that phrase land on your heart for a minute, that we've become partakers of the divine nature. Now that needs to be explained. And we could distinguish between God's essence and God's nature. His essence is what he is. His nature is what he's like. We don't become divine. That's not what that means. We become like the divine. The word actually comes from a root that means to be born or to spring up from the ground. And so it means that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, listen, there's life in you that is not from you. It's from God. When you're born again, you get infused with God's DNA. So just like you have DNA from your parents that determines the color of your eyes or the color of your hair or even what your personality is going to be like and all these things, nurture versus nature and so forth. God's life is in you. His DNA has been given to you. And so over time, you will see it more and more. It'll show up. And again, it's hard to describe the significance of this. There's a phrase in Colossians 1 that talks about the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. We read this just this past week in Community Bible Reading. The fullness of God dwelling in Jesus is just a remarkable statement, but it's even more remarkable when you consider that Ephesians chapter 3 says, and Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us, that they and us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Think about that. That it's possible for you and me to be filled with the fullness of who God is. And the picture is, the infinite love and power of God, the life of God coming into our small persons and being just too much to be contained in us and so spilling over into all of the people and the places in our lives and everything that we touch. Isn't that an amazing picture? Now what happens when a person who's full of God like this runs into the corruption that we described a minute ago that's so true of the world? Well, Jesus said, that for those of us who've believed in him, the spirit in us is like rivers of living water that are overflowing out of the heart and then out of our lives and into the lives of others and into all the things that we come in contact with. It's an image borrowed actually from the Old Testament in Ezekiel 47. And there, there's a river that is flowing out from the throne of God. And listen to this phrase. I just read this this week and it's so wonderful. It says, everything and everywhere uh, everything will live, it says, where the river goes. <laughs> everything will live where the river goes. So there's fish and trees and life everywhere. Uh, the river flows and it just springs the deadness, you know, life out of the deadness. And, and it goes on to say the water goes down and it crashes into the sea. And listen to this. It says, when the river coming out from the, the throne and the presence of God, which is an image of the Spirit, when it crashes into the sea, the salt water of the sea becomes fresh. And it's this beautiful picture of the power of God in the world that when God's, listen, when God's life meets whatever deadness it finds, the deadness gives way. When Jesus touches something that is unclean, he doesn't become unclean. That thing becomes clean. When those who have the Spirit living inside of them rub up against corruption, they don't become corrupted. But that renewal that's happening inside of them begins to happen in those places as well. 
That's our hope. And that's what Peter clearly says here. If, if you skip over the middle part, go down to verse 8, he talks about this. He says that this person that I'm trying to describe, who's full of God's power, wherever they go, they have impact. They bring change. And he uses three different words to describe this. He says that if the life of God is in you, it will keep you from being ineffective. It'll keep you from being unfruitful. And then down in verse 10, he says, and you will never fail. Now, those, those words are important. The first word, ineffective, is a negation of the Greek word ergon, as in ergonomics. And ergonomics is the study of working conditions in the business world to maximize efficiency. So it refers to like the design of a person's workspace or the layout of an office complex. And the goal in this is to increase the amount of work that's being done. And so if the life of God is in you, there will be ergon. You will get stuff done. Not just the to-do list, but spiritually in the kingdom. Wherever God sends you, you'll see change and impact. The second word in verse 8, it will keep you from being unfruitful, is the negation of the Greek word for fruit. So just as oranges are the fruit of an orange tree, and if the orange tree doesn't produce any oranges, it means that something's wrong in the tree. There's disease or unhealth somewhere because a healthy tree produces fruit. And if there is life in the orange tree, then there will be oranges. You recognize them by their fruits, Jesus said. And so if you have genuine spiritual life in you, there will be outward results, stuff you can see, impact, change. And then the third word is the word fall. You will never fall. Isn't that a beautiful promise? He says, if, if this work is happening in you, you will never fall. And that means, the word there means to stumble or to get tripped up. And so the opposite is just, I can't say it better than Isaiah 40 says it, when the prophet um, imagines a person like this, when he says, they, will, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want to soar through life like that? Hello, you with me? Okay, good. Just checking. I want to soar through life like that. Now, it's not exactly the way I've presented it so far, okay? I got to say one thing before we move on, because there's a big if that's involved in here. There are, there, there's an if, and the text goes on to say that what you need in order to secure this kind of success, uh, though I hesitate to use that word, maybe impact's a better word, uh, what you need is all of the stuff in between verses 3 and 4 and verses 9 and 10. And here's the surprise is what Paul, what, not Paul, what Peter tells us here that we need is all the stuff inside you. So look there again, verses, beginning in verse um, 7. I'm sorry, verse 5. Um, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and, and love and then verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. And then down in verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And so there's a big if here. C.S. Lewis, as usual, said what I'm trying to say better than I can say it. He said, and this has been so profound for me uh, for so long in my life now. Uh, but he says this, he says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been to know how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. But for the modern man, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is technique. He says, we've really lost our way. Let me, the problem for the wise men of old 
the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution was knowledge and self-discipline and virtues, exactly what Peter's saying here. So we've arrived at our doctrine, finally, after all of these minutes talking together, and the doctrine of this text, and what I want to explore for the rest of the summer together, is just this, that divine power is power to live from the inside out and not from the outside in. The change we need is not external change, it's internal change. Now, when we pray, we pray for God to change our circumstances, but God doesn't want to change our circumstances. God wants to change us. And then when he begins to change us, we change our circumstances. When what he is doing in us begins to overflow into those things that are so on our hearts and so we so desperately need to see change. Now, that's the promise. Divine power is the power to live from the inside out and not the outside in. And we're going to spend the rest of the summer talking about that. But thirdly and lastly, as we just come to a close, how do you get, how do you get this power? And we're told in the salutation at the beginning how this works in a person's life. So when Peter is addressing these people he's writing to, he says to those, first one, who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is a Jew writing to Gentile believers, but he says to them, you have the exact same standing with God as I do because the righteousness that we both need has nothing to do with being Jewish. The only righteousness that counts is the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that God gives as a gift. And we read about this too this past week in Community Bible Reading, which I hope you're reading with us in Philippians 3. Paul was saying there how there are all these things. Remember this? All these things in his life where um, he saw them as spiritual assets. He was really proud of all this stuff. He was Jewish and a Pharisee, and he was zealous. In other words, he showed up to church more often than anybody else did, and he obeyed all the laws and uh, all the rules, and he was blameless, he said, so much so that he called himself blameless, and he thought having all of that was the way to be right with God, but something happened in his life, and he realized that the things he thought of as assets were actually liabilities because what they were doing is, is they were causing him, in all of this success, he was beginning to rely upon himself and his righteousness and not to rely upon God and submit to the righteousness that he gives. And it, what he thought was getting him close to God was actually driving him further away. Jesus Christ came into the world to perform the obedience God required so that we might have the righteousness we need, not as a wage, but as the free gift of his grace. It's what he does and then gives to you. It's not what you do and then give to him. So the only way to righteousness, Paul says here, is to know that you don't have your own. Do you see how this works? The only way to become a Christian is to know that you can't do it on your own, that your strength is not enough, that your that your doing will never do it. That's, that's the first step in becoming a Christian. So a Christian is a person who lives from a place of weakness. Uh, the Bible says uh, that's when the power comes. Now notice the word called in verse 3 and verse 10. It comes up twice here, and that means that whatever faith and love, whatever's coming out of us, is not something that originated with us, but whatever's coming out of us is actually just a response to a previous and greater work of God in us, but it always starts with him. So look at these qualities again here in verses five through seven. What is faith? 
Faith is the ability to see your circumstances through the lens of God's unlimited power and love in spite of your personal weakness and failure. What is virtue? It's not something inherent to any of us. It is actually the excellence of God. That same word is used up there in verse three. It's the excellence of God. It has to come into your life from the outside. You have to catch it from him. You have to be called into it. I mean, how do you get knowledge and then see it increasing? Because he says, you gotta have these things and see them increasing. Well, how do you, how do you get smart and actually see yourself getting smarter and smarter and smarter and, and more and more wise? Well, the, the only way is you've got to know how much you don't know. Because that's the foundation of all wisdom, right? Don't be wise in your own eyes. And so these are not things that you muster up here. They are things that have to be given when you live honestly out of weakness. The starting place for everything in Christianity is weakness. And so humility, not boasting or self-pity, and confessing sin, not blaming everybody else, and an overwhelming sense of gratitude and love, not entitlement, that is the power of God in a life. You with me? That is the power of God. And it's so beautiful when it begins to show up. David uh, Paulson, who's with CCEF in Philly, uh, and a, really a father in the faith to a lot of us, to, to me, uh, a good friend of Paul Miller and, and uh, Tim Keller and some of the guys that really have shaped us. Uh, he died this past week of um, stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, that just got diagnosed about six months ago. And he was scheduled to give the commencement address at Westminster Theological Seminary. And the manuscript uh, came out just a few days before he died because he was obviously unable to attend. And here was a man of incredible wisdom and depth. I mean, more, more so than just about anybody I, I, I know, uh, you know, today. And this was his last piece of advice from all of the years of trying to bring the human heart into alignment with the gospel. He wrote these young men and women preparing for gospel ministry to tell them this. Here's what he said. Here's what I want you to do. He said, be unafraid to be publicly weak. And I just found it so profound because it's the people who embrace their weakness and who live publicly weak. It's those people who change the world. Because as Paul said in Corinthians, that the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And that's, that's what I want to spend the rest of the summer talking about. So if this, if this piques your curiosity, come back next week and the week after. But that commencement address, in that address, David uh, Paulson referred to a character from the book Cry the Beloved Country, uh, Missy Mangu, who's a priest. He's, he's uh, the hero uh, because he was the only one in the story who saw himself rightly and lived with the kind of humility and weakness that is required in most things in the world. And there's a famous line uh, where they're talking and they're trying to compliment him and, and whatnot. And this famous line, he says, no, I am a selfish sinful and weak man, but God has put his hand on me, that is all. And I want to say to you, when those two things collide in you, you'll be a person of faith and virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and love and all of those things that Paul, excuse me, that Peter, I got to get that right, that Peter describes here. So the question this morning is not, the question is not, do, do I have all of these qualities and are they increasing? Because that's what Peter says I need. See, the question this morning that every one of us should seek to answer is, has God put his hand on me? So I would ask it to you. Has God put his hand on you? Can I say, if you're not sure, the answer is probably no. Because typically you know it when it happens. But if not... 
then here's my advice. Then just start to ask him to. Ask him. Say, God, please put your hand on me. If you ask him, he will. That's what he promises. Okay? You believe that? Let's pray. So, Father, to that end, we pray this morning that just as the Spirit came down upon the church in Acts 2, and then again in Acts 11 and in chapter 19, and again throughout the history of the world in the, in the great reformation in Europe with Martin Luther and John Calvin, and in the first great awakening here in America, and then the second great awakening 100 years later here, and in the revivals that we've seen throughout the world, throughout the history of the church, when the power of God fell, would, would you send your power again? Would the Spirit come again, we pray? Would you put your hand on us so that we might see these qualities Peter describes here begin to, to just grow out of us and be increasing so that we might never be ineffective or unfruitful, that we might never fall, that we might spread wings like eagles and soar through life, bearing fruit that would glorify you, being full of good works, beautiful works that people who don't believe would see and say, I gotta know what that's about. That's what we pray. And for those here who don't know you, would you come in a powerful way? Would you put your hand Would you put your hand on those of us in the room still living in unbelief? Would you put your hand on our kids and steer them towards faith and repentance? Oh, we need for you to do this. And so come in the way you promised to in these last moments as we sing to you. And now just in gratitude and celebration of all that you promised here, we offer uh, this song to you as a response to this good news that you've given to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear these words from 1 Peter chapter 2 that he has, in fact, rescued us. He's called us into his uh, glorious light. Listen to this. He said, um, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what we're being sent now to go do, to proclaim the excellencies of this one that we've talked about this morning. But as you go, know uh, that the doing that's done out there doesn't depend upon you. You go into a world where God is already at work. He's just calling you into the work that he's already begun. That's what these words mean. And so go in full assurance of that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.